0: Turning your Bible to the book of Mark. And allow me, as you go, just to quote two verses. 1 Peter 5, verse 13. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Peter, at the end of his life, says, My son, Mark. And then at the end of Paul's life, just before his head is cut off in the book of second Timothy, chapter four, the apostle Paul says, only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. Mark was a young man when in the late 40s. A.D., about 15 or 20 years after Jesus went back to heaven, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey. They left a city called Antioch to the north of Jerusalem, and they began what would be about a year and a half or two years of traveling around preaching the gospel. And they took a young man named Mark. After Paul and Barnabas were stoned... In the city of Lystra, Mark was afraid and left them. How do you think you'd feel? It was probably Mark's son or Mark's mother who in the book of Acts had the prayer meeting while Peter was in prison. And Mark had been involved in Christianity for a number of years, but he was a younger man maybe in his twenties or thirties at the time that he went on this missionary journey and he went out with zeal, but he was terrified. He's looking death in the face and he asks, am I up for this? And he turns around and leaves and Paul is not happy. Two years later, Paul is back in Jerusalem with Barnabas and they're ready to go out on their second missionary journey. But Barnabas says, it's been two years. I'm sure Mark has changed. And Paul says, I'm sorry, but this isn't a time for boys. And Barnabas says, I know what you're saying, but this is a time for grace. And Paul writes back and says, We love grace. I preach grace. I'm an apostle of grace, but I'm in a spiritual war. And I can't have a man running away when I need ammunition. Who was right? Well, I preached on that some time ago. Do you remember that sermon? I think Barnabas was right. More right than Paul. But about 20 years later, Barnabas was right. And Mark grew and changed. And the Lord was using him through that bold Peter. That that one he was praying for back when Peter was in prison. And history tells us, although we only have a few references, history tells us that Mark was Peter's special disciple. And Peter probably trained him and prayed with him and evangelized with him. Like all godly pastors should have one or two or three or five young men that they are training and praying so that when they die, those men can take over. Or even while they're living, those men can go out and plant other churches. And Peter did that with Mark. We believe that the book of Mark was written from the things that he learned from Peter. He heard so many stories. Some people believe that Mark was the first one of the gospels written. The debate is between Mark or Luke, Mark or Luke. Which one of the four? Here's the answer. No one knows. And it doesn't really matter. We do know that Mark and Luke were written before Matthew and they were definitely written before John. And they were written before 70 A.D. Which means Jesus died about 30 A.D. 70 A.D. is when the temple is destroyed. This is a famous time in church history. You can't forget that date. 70 A.D. You can't forget this because this is when our sins were destroyed. You can't forget this because this is when the Jews' temple was destroyed. Somewhere in here, closer out to this side, the book of Mark was written, and then probably Luke, and then probably Matthew. And we, the book of Luke, as we're going to see next week, Luke tells us, I read other people. I I didn't walk with Jesus. I read sources, and I talked to people. And Mark was probably one of the books that he read in order to write his account. And somewhere out here, we have the book of Mark written. So it's now 30 years or so since Jesus has gone back to heaven. And Mark picks up his pen because he wants to tell us, here's the great theme of the book. You can write this. If you're writing these themes down, you can write them right on top of the, by the title. Here's the theme, an introduction to the gospel An introduction to the the gospel. How do I know that that's the theme? Well, I have two ways to prove it. Number one, I have the first verse of the book. And number two, I have the content or the things that he chose to talk about in the book. Let's see those right here. Number one, the first verse. Lloyd, could you read that for us? Mark one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Right there. He tells us at the beginning. Thank you, Mark. I want to tell you about the beginning of the gospel. I want to give you an introduction to let you know if you're interested in the good news of Jesus Christ, where would you start? Well, try to start right here. What does Paul Mark mean when he says the beginning of the gospel? He doesn't necessarily mean, I'm I'm starting from the beginning, because he doesn't tell us about the birth of Jesus. He's identifying the subject of his entire book. His entire book is going to be a beginning to the gospel. Now, let's go through the book right now, and for the next 40 minutes, we're going to go through this book. And as we go through, I want you to ask yourself, what themes does he talk about? And think about the book of Matthew. And next week when we look at Luke, think about the themes that they talk about. And he ignores some things and chooses other things. Well, as we begin, I want to tell you one more thing about this to keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open in this book for action. Keep your eyes open for the word immediately. Keep your eyes open in this book for details that other books don't have. Uh, This book that I have here is a Harmony of the Gospels. You can borrow it if you'd like. And in this book, it's arranged in columns, as I mentioned this morning, with Matthew, Mark, Luke. Or if they have all four, then John is listed there. And it's the whole, all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are in this, this book. But they're arranged side by side. So that you can see, there's Matthew, there's Mark, there's Luke, and there's John on the same story. And you can see here, for example, this is John. And look at this blank spot. That means Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't talk about that story. But here, look at this. They all talk about that story. But Luke doesn't talk about this part. So you see how it's laid out that way? Now, by by following that through, I was able to study... And see specific things that Mark mentions that no one else mentions. And you're going to see some of those tonight. Now because of time, I am only going to pick certain things. We're just going to pick some of the highlights. And I'm going to pick several of the things that only Mark mentions. So let's get right into it. The book of Mark, the beginning of the gospel. Well, he mentions the, the, um, John the Baptist. Just like all of the gospels do. That's the beginning here. Uh, verses 2. Down to verse 3. 12. But look here in verse number 15. Look in verse 15. Uh, Start in verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee. And what was Jesus doing? Preaching Preaching the good news. So Jesus' great goal in life is to be a preacher while he's here on, or I'm sorry, Jesus' ministry while he was living on the earth was to be a preacher. Before he went to the cross. And he preaches the kingdom of God. And we saw that from Matthew. If you want to study the kingdom of God, go to the book of Matthew. Mark's not going to open it up. He's just going to hit and run. His audience was probably Gentiles. Possibly Romans. They didn't understand the kingdom of God. They didn't know the Old Testament. So Mark references the Old Testament only rarely. Matthew references the Old Testament constantly. Look at verse 15. In in Mark's idea, what is the kingdom of God? Now, before we read verse 15, you may remember in, in the book of Matthew from last week, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three full chapters. And the theme of Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the kingdom of God. But look how much time Mark gives to it. One line. Dineo, can you read verse 15? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come here. Repent and believe the good news. That's it. Matthew gives us three chapters, Mark gives us a line. He doesn't stop to look deeply in the details of what is God's kingdom and explain to me the laws of Christ. No, Mark says, I'm just here to introduce you to the subject. And here's an introduction. Here's an introduction straight from the Holy Spirit. The time is now. Repent and believe. That's a pretty good plan of salvation. Turn from your sins and believe. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in your baptism or your effort. Turn from your sin and put your heart on Christ. That's a pretty Good introduction, don't you think? Well, he goes on. Look, look down here. Um, In verse 21, it says he taught in the synagogue. See the word teach? Again, verse 22. They were amazed at his what? Teaching. Teaching because he did something. What did he do? He taught them. Here it is again. Jesus is a teacher. I've got to keep saying this over and over because... Again, this is not comfortable today. But true Christianity is a rational religion. It is not a religion where you unplug your brain, disconnect logic, stop reading books. No, this is an issue where you need to learn things. You need to study. You need to come in with your thinking cap. You need to bring a pen and buy a Bible and read a book and work hard. It's not easy. There are ideas to be learned. And Jesus shows us that because he's always teaching, not shouting. Well, uh, this is a passage that I love in the book of Mark. Verse 32. After heals Simon Peter's wife, wife's mother. Verse 32. And in the evening. At what time in the evening? Verse 32. What time? When the sun had gone down, that's the kind of thing Mark puts in everywhere. Have your eyes out for that. He doesn't just say in the evening. He wants to know when the sun's down. So it's getting dark. Just like now. What happens? They brought to him how many people? All who were diseased and possessed with devils. And how much of the city was gathered together? Crowds of people were there. When? It's already after dark. He's already worked a full day. He wants to rest. No rest. Verse 33 The whole city's gathered together to the door. Verse 34 And he healed many that were sick of divers diseases. He cast out many devils and did not allow the devils to speak because they knew him. In verse 35 And in the morning, taking some time off because he had worked so hard the night before. What does it say? And in the morning, getting up, not, not before the day, but what time did he get up? While it was still dark and he prayed. While it was still dark. And then he leaves. He goes out of the house. It's not enough it's just to sit in the corner. He has to get a private place. He walks out of the house. He finds a private place. And he prays there. His priority was always divine subjects. I wonder if that is our priority. Well, he goes on preaching. He goes on evangelizing. Look in chapter two. We mentioned this just briefly last week, but in chapter two, there's the story of him healing this man who comes down through the roof. And in verse five, I love this. Verse five, when Jesus saw their faith because they opened up the roof, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the sick man, son, your sins are forgiven you. Isn't Jesus wonderful? What would you think he would say? I heal you. But he knows where the priority should be. When he's tired, he gets up to pray. When you're sick, he forgives you. That's Christianity. The priority was not his broken body but he didn't forget his broken body. There were certain scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts. They're just thinking. And what do they think in their heart? Verse seven. Why does this man speak blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but who? What does that tell you? That tells you they were logical. And was their logic right or wrong? Their logic was exactly right. They understood Proposition number one in Aristotle's syllogism. Proposition, proposition one, only God can forgive sins. Proposition two, Jesus forgives sins. Proposition three, conclusion. What's the conclusion? Jesus is, Jesus is God. And rather than asking, is it true, they simply say it's blasphemy. It's only blasphemy if you're not God. But if you are God, it's not blasphemy anymore. So I wrote in my Bible a little triangle. That's my mark. This is the mark I put all through my Bible when I found the deity of Christ or the Trinity. If you start that today, pretty soon your Bible will be filled with triangles. And if anyone ever says, well, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You just open your Bible to almost any page in the New Testament. and These triangles will jump out at you especially in the gospels. Well, that's, uh, that's enough there for chapter two. Jump to chapter three. Oh, chapter three. Look at chapter three, verse one. He enters into the synagogue again, and there's a man there with a withered hand. Verse two, they watched him. They were trying to trap him, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath day so they could accuse him. And he said, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stand up. And he said to all the people, Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath day? To do evil or to save life or to kill? But they would not talk. Why would they not answer? Were they they like Solomon says, a wise man will control his words? No, they were cowards. They were wimps. They were sissies. And they weren't willing to tell Jesus in front of all those people. Our theology will not allow you to do anything good on a Saturday. You have to sit there. No good things on a Saturday. And you see how Jesus trapped them with that Socratic questioning? Maybe I should say it's Christological questioning. Because Jesus Christ does it better than Socrates. But here he is asking this question, pushing them in a corner. And then look at verse 5. I love every line of our Lord's life is instructive. Look at verse 5. When he had looked all around on them with something. Anger. Anger is not always a sin. It is an attribute of God. It is something that we should copy. Now we need to copy it like the Lord Jesus. Just like we need to copy the Lord Jesus' love. Jesus loves in a certain way and he gets angry in a certain way. Jesus rejoices in a certain way. Jesus laughs at some things and not at others. And you and I should copy that. We should copy his anger here. Let me ask you, what was he angry about? It says it right there in verse 5. Thank you, Francis. They were stubborn people. He is not happy with that stubbornness. He's angry at their stubborn hearts. And then Jesus is not a coward. He knew what they would think. He knew what they would eventually do. They don't have the guts, even though there are many of them. Even though they're the ones who don't want to help a poor man. Jesus is a strong, courageous man, and he has the courage to be angry at them in public and then to go on with his plan and heal the man right there in front of them. He could have taken the man out to the side. Instead, he says, stretch out your hand. Verse six. And the Pharisees went forth. Can you imagine this? And Jesus knew that they would do this. What did they do in verse six? To To do what? from the beginning of his ministry they want him dead and Jesus knew that and he still healed the man this is the introduction to the gospel of Jesus and there's there's these wonderful things being laid out he's laying out for you a man who's not merely a man He's laying out this prophet who's not merely a prophet. He's laying out for you this teacher who's much more than a teacher, who's courageous and bold and pointed and perfect and gentle and loving, even loving on a Saturday. And so he shows us what the Sabbath is for. <clears throat> Verse 7 Jesus withdrew himself with the disciples. And a great multitude came after him. Look in verse 11, the unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down and cried, "You are the Son of God!" They knew the truth. And so what did he say? In verse 12, He commanded them that they would not do what. Is the Lord Jesus humble? He is. Is God humble? Can God be humble? I I thought if you were humble, you forget yourself. But God doesn't forget himself. This is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he took on flesh, he acts just like this. And he is humble while he's here on earth. And he's glorious in his humility. And here's one more example. We're going to see more of them. If you want, you can put an H for humility. In verse 12, he commands the demons, don't talk about me publicly. Well, he goes on there and chooses the 12 disciples. And then look at this. This is another interesting one. In verse 31, chapter three, verse 31. Then there came his brother and his mother, his brothers and his mother, and they stood outside and they called him. And the multitude inside said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are seeking for you. And he answered them, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked round about on them, which sat about him. And he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Verse 35, For whoever will do the will of God, that same one is my brother and my sister and my mother. It's an introduction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You look at Jesus you be amazed and then you obey him. Let me just ask you this just quickly here. What is the will of God? If you could summarize it, just summarize it in a sentence or in a word or in a phrase. What is the will of God? Right in your Bibles, right beside verse 35, John 6, verse 40. We're in Mark 3, verse 35. And mark down John 6, verse 40, right beside John, right beside Mark 3.35. If you want, you can go there, I'll just quote it to you. This is the will of God that you believe on the one whom He has sent. Do you follow that? What is God's will? Believe on Jesus. That's it. If you had to summarize The will of God, the best way to do it is this. Just believe in his son. Yes, there's other verses in the Bible. I know 1 Thessalonians 3, 4 says this is the will of God that you abstain from fornication. That's true. But if you want to get right down to a summary statement of the will of God, there it is. Book of John, chapter 6, verse 40. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Because if you believe in him, you will be drawn to him. And if you are drawn to him, everything else will follow. Chapter four is the parables. The parable of the sower in verses one down to verse 21, 20. And then here's an interesting parable. It's only found in the book of Mark. Just want to take this for a moment. Look at chapter four, verse 26. It's the only parable that's only in Mark. You might want to mark that down in your Bible here. Mark four, verse 26. This parable is only found here. And he said, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed into the ground. And then what does the man do? When he casts the seed into the ground, what does he do? He He goes to sleep. He rises night and day and the seed will spring and grow. He does not know how. For the earth brings forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the earth, after that the full corn and the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he goes out and puts the sickle in because the harvest is here. John McCarthy preached a great, great sermon a few years ago and he said, sow the seed and go to sleep. Sow the seed and go to sleep. And that's, That's the message of God's sovereignty. And that gives me great comfort. I am full of zeal for evangelism, but not so full as I wish I were. I long to see people come to Christ. I spend 10 or more hours every week on evangelism. I want to spend more time speaking to people about the gospel. But I have to accept this parable. And I have to be comforted by it because it can overwhelm me and say, I can't do it. It'll never work. What can I do? Hey, the beginning of the gospel, just the introduction, just the first step of the gospel. You give the word and then step back. If you want to be in my religion, the religion that Jesus came to start, it's this simple. You accept me and believe on me. You tell others about it and then just go to sleep. Wow. What a concept. What a message. The sovereignty of God. Because as it says in verse 28, the earth will bring it forth by itself. The earth doesn't call out to the farmer. Hey farmer, can't you help me? It does it by itself. That's the message here. The sovereignty of God and the power of the word of God. We sow the seed and the gospel will save people. Let me ask you before we move on. I don't know when I'll come back to this. Do you believe in the power of the gospel? Do I believe in it? I find myself doubting the power of the gospel. And I need to remember Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation. I've just got to believe that. If we are giving the gospel faithfully, he will make the seed to grow. Well, chapter four has many other wonderful things, but we're going to move on. Chapter five is the story of the demon. There's a demon here. He comes to the country, the Gadarenes. It's very long in Mark, almost as if it's only in Mark. It's not in Luke. And, and here in Matthew, when it's told, it's, it's only about eight verses. But in Mark, it's many verses. Do you see what I said? Mark is action oriented immediately. We've already passed the word immediately a number of times. I don't know if you've noticed that as you've been reading. Here the story of this man possessed with a demon, Jesus, uh, Mark gives us a lot of details. Look at some of the details in verse 2. When he was come out of the ship, what's the next word? Immediately. See there? There met him a man out of the tombs. Verse three, he had his dwelling in the tombs. He stayed in the tombs. No man could bind him, not even with chains. He had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been broken. No man could stop him night and day. Imagine him shouting right now. He shouts in the night, he shouts in the day. He's in the mountains, he's in the tombs. He cries, he shouts. And he cuts himself with sharp stones. It's a work of the devil to mutilate yourself. God does not want us to mutilate ourselves or to hurt ourselves. When we lose our mind, when we're overcome with powers outside of rationality or the image of God or the Lord Jesus Christ... Then we do things that are very foolish, like the prophets of Baal who cut themselves. False religions always do that. False religions taught the mothers and the fathers to offer their babies as sacrifices, living, burning sacrifices. False religions cut themselves. Demons inspired that. And here we see it. The demons inspired him to cut him here. When he saw Jesus, he ran to Jesus and worshipped him. Why would a demon... Worship this man. there's another triangle, by the way. He cried with a loud voice, "What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I tell you by God that you do not torment me. I ask you, do not come and torment me. For he had said to him, "Come out of the man." Well, the devil does come out, and then look in verse 15. And they come to Jesus and they see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Nakedness is not a natural state. It was natural before the fall. But after sin has come into the world, it's not natural. It's unnatural to take your clothes off in public. Here this man is now free from that terrible demon and he sits He's rational. He's in his right mind. And what, what, does the, what happens to the people in verse 15? What was their response? They were afraid. Now I just want to ask you this. Is that the right response? Was that the way they should have responded? Absolutely yes. If you look back in the last chapter, look back at chapter 4, verse 31. <clears throat> when Jesus calms the waves. They cal- he calms the waves in verse 39. And in verse 41, what does it say? How did they respond when he calmed the waves? Someone read that verse, verse 41. And they fear evil, and one another. Stop. They were terrified. Why? Keep reading verse 41. Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey? They know up front this isn't a man. Men don't do this. This is not normal. No one can do this. Even prophets can't do this. Who can control an ocean? It's one thing by the power of God like Moses to throw down a rock and uh, a staff and becomes a stick. But to control an ocean, people can't do this. I put a triangle there and they were afraid. And then in verse 15, they, uh, chapter 5, verse 15, they were afraid. And I'd like to tell you that they were right to be afraid because they finally realized we are with someone who looks like us, but he's not like us. It's, it's, it's kind of like books and novels try to do when they they might try to tell a story about a, a terrifying ghost. What terrifies you about that? Because... In some ways, that person is like me, but in another way, he's so different and so different from me that I'm scared. They were frightened of the Lord Jesus because they were so near to someone who was so different. He was God. Chapter 5 is wonderful. He heals many healings. Chapter 6 has the death of John the Baptist from verse 14 down to verse 30. Again, we have something amazing here, John chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6, verse 14 to 30, it's the death of John the Baptist, but it's, it's much longer, almost twice as long as it is in Matthew. So even though Mark doesn't have these long sermons, you remember last week I put on the board that Matthew has a sermon and then story, sermon, story, sermon, story, five sermons, six different sections of story. Mark doesn't have those preaching sections, or very few of them. He cuts them all down, like the Sermon on the Mount, to one line. But here, he expands on the man with the demon. He expands the story of John the Baptist's head being cut off. Why? He's introducing us to the gospel this way. Look at verse 14. King Herod had heard of Jesus. For his name was famous. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Now, why would he think that? Now it tells the story of how John the Baptist had his head cut off. John the Baptist was in prison. And Herodias, that's his new wife, his brother Philip's wife. Herod took his brother's wife. And her daughter was beautiful. And she came out and danced for all the politicians. And the king, trying to show off in front of all the politicians, said, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. And the girl goes back to her mother and says, what should I ask for? And the mother says, tell him to cut off John the Baptist's head and put it on a plate. Why would she say that? Because he was preaching politics. Because John the Baptist was preaching to politicians. Look look at this. In Mark chapter six, verse 18, John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Verse 19, therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him. Who is the king? Herod. Who makes the laws? Herod. Who defies the laws? John the Baptist. Why? Because there's a higher law than the king. There's a law above the king. Samuel Rutherford wrote the book 400 years ago, Lex Rex, Latin for the law and the king. Lex is law, Rex is king, the law and the king. And what Rutherford's point there is, there is a law higher than the king. It's God's law. And here, John the Baptist goes right into politics. I wonder how he would be received in our churches today. And what happens? Look in verse 26. The king was exceedingly sorry, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject this little girl. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought and he went and beheaded him in the prison. The fear of man will make you do foolish things. The fear of man will even put you in a place where you will send your soul to hell rather than oppose A 17 or 18 year old girl. This is the beginning of the gospel. It's the introduction of the gospel. Chapter 7. Chapter 7 verses 1 to 13. Sola Scriptura. Oh chapter 7 is wonderful. Verses 1 to 13 is Sola Scriptura. This is a section where. Mark has to quote the Old Testament because the people would not know the Old Testament. Uh, Verse 1, the Pharisees and scribes come together and they see the disciples eating with hands that were not washed. Verse 3, the Pharisees and all the Jews, unless they wash their hands, often they do not eat. Now he doesn't need to say that in Matthew. In the book of Matthew, that line's not in there. Because Matthew was written to the Jews and the Jews knew that. But here, verse three, Mark seven, verse three is in the Bible because the people Mark was writing to didn't know this. So Mark puts it in the Bible just so that we would know it. We Gentiles. Verse four, when they come from the market, unless they wash, they do not eat. That's not in Matthew. It's in Mark. And many other things there are, which they have received to hold, like the washing of cups and pots and bronze vessels and tables. They do all those things. So the Pharisees and the scribes, why, why don't your disciples wash their hands? Verse six, does Jesus answer them? Verse six, Isaiah has well prophesied of you hypocrites. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain, verse seven, in vain, they worship me teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. Verse eight, they lay aside the commandment of God. They hold the tradition of men like the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things they do. And he said to them, full well, you reject the commandment of God so that you can keep your own tradition. Verse 10, Moses said, honor your father and your mother and whoever curses father and mother, let him die the death. But you say, if a man will say to his father or mother, Corbin, gift. By whatever you might be profited, then he doesn't have to pay for his parents anymore. Verse 12, and you permit him no more to do anything for his father or his mother. Verse 13, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition and many other like things you do. What is Jesus saying here? You have an authority higher than the Bible. Bible. That's sola scriptura, or that's Jesus was teaching sola scriptura. He's saying, You're wrong. You're hypocrites because you pretend to be religious. You pretend to worship God, but you have an authority higher than the Bible. Oh, I love you, Mark. Thank you for putting that story in. And Lord Jesus, thank you for doing that. Here's an introduction to the gospel obey the Bible. You want a beginning? Just bow to the Bible, whatever it says. If you don't like it, if it's different, if, you didn't, if you've never heard that, if your uncle doesn't agree, if it's not your culture, just accept the Bible. That's just an introduction to the gospel. Yeah, but I have these problems. No, 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 we don't, we don't do that. We just, we just accept the Bible. It's God's word. Well, but, but I'm a Christian who does. No, 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 we just, it's the Bible. He goes on. Oh, so I've just got to make a comment here in the next section. Uh, look, look down at verse 14. When he had called all the people to him, he said, look, he calls all the people. Listen to me, every one of you, and understand, verse 15, there is nothing from without a man that entering into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those defile the man. The people don't understand. What are you talking about? Look down at Verse 21. From within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lust, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from where? Where do they come from? Mark 7, verse 23. They come from the heart. They come from inside. I've said this before, but here's a great proof text. All of our problems come from inside of us. And the things outside of us are not our great problems. That's not to say that we don't have problems outside of us. That's to say that our real problems, the master problem, is my heart. If I'm depressed, the great problem is not that my wife is such a bad woman. It's that my heart isn't handling it biblically. If I have great problems, the greatest problem is what comes from inside. Because Jesus said this to Saul, who had more problems than any of us. What is, I'm sorry, Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. Because my strength is made perfect in your weakness. If you say, but I have a lot of problems. That's right. But God has enough strength to overcome your problems. If you would just humble yourself and repent and, see, and get rid of all the sins you have in your own heart. Oh, what, thank you, thank you for this wonderful teaching. The world's religions all say this, the problems are outside and the solution is inside. Christianity says the problems are inside and the solution is outside. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of the Christian faith. Oh, so much. One more thing in chapter seven. We, we can't go without seeing this. I'll probably never preach a sermon on this, so we've got to just see it now. Um, verse 25. A certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him. Chapter seven, verse 25. And came and fell at his feet. Now, when John falls at the feet of an angel, what does the angel tell him to do? Get up. Get up. When the woman falls at the feet of Jesus, he does not tell her to get up. You should put a little triangle again. Verse 26, the woman was a Greek. Uh, my old translation says a Syrophoenician, but I think your, the modern translation says, uh, um, I forgot, what, what does it say? Verse 26. What kind of woman? What, what's the? Syrophoenician. Does it say Syrophoenician? I thought there's another word that the modern translations used. A Greek. No, there's another word. Syrophoenician woman. She besought him that he would cast the devil out of her daughter. Jesus said to her, let the children first be filled. Who are the children there? The Jews. Let the children first be filled for it is not mean to take the children's bread and cast it to who? Dogs. That was a racial slur. It would be like in America saying the word nigger, chink, one of these other words that is crude, gringo, people call whites in certain places, all these different words. Jesus used a word like that. It was highly offensive. And what does she do? Verse 28, she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Write an H beside that. What a wonderful example of humility. She calls herself that offensive racial stereotype. The things that the, the crude Jews were saying about her. She takes it to herself and says, You're right. But can't I just have a crumb? I am a dog. Verse 29. And he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the devil is gone out of your daughter. Do you see? If I can use this crude terminology, please forgive this. She purchased her daughter's healing with humility. You see that? That's the way to live. Brothers and sisters, let's just go low. Let's not be offended when someone says something rude to us. People do that. Let's not be hypersensitive, always getting angry about everything. That's the way people are. It's okay. Let's not get that way. Let's just go low, especially before the Lord Jesus. Let's be honest about ourselves, let's be honest about our culture. The Jews' culture was superior to the Syrophoenician culture. It was the Jews' culture that brought a system of laws. The laws of the Old Testament were superior. And this woman did not get cocky or proud or angry. She just said, You're right, I'm a dog. Can't I have a crumb. She says, more than a crumb. More than a crumb. The story is also in Matthew where I believe she was converted. I can't wait to see her in heaven. Speak to this woman who mastered humility. And and many of us, we can struggle to pass grade R. It would be like this woman. Oh, so many more things. Chapter eight, let's skip on. Chapter eight has another story that's only in Mark. And it's the healing of a blind man. Uh, For time, we're gonna have to run through that one even though it's a great story. chapter eight closes with a message of real humility and lordship. We saw that in um, Matthew. So we'll move on chapter nine, chapter nine. We covered a lot of the things here in Matthew, Uh, but here's a section that's only in Mark. Excuse me. Mark chapter nine, verse 21. It's the healing of this. It's the healing of this uh, boy with the demon. And there's something very interesting here. Mark 9, verse 21. The father comes and says, how long ago is it since this came to him? From a child. Verse 22. He casts himself into the fire, into the water. Please have compassion on me. And so the Lord Jesus heals him. But look at verse 28. When he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast him out? And Jesus said to them, this kind can come forth by nothing. But by prayer and fasting, there is a priority that comes to a pious, disciplined soul. There is benefit to prayer. There is benefit to dedicating yourself to the work of the Lord, to private devotions. This kind does not come out except by prayer and fasting. Chapter nine closes with a story that's also only found in Mark. It's found in hints in Matthew chapter 18, but in fullness it's found in Mark. Verse 43, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that will never be quenched. Verse 44, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus goes on to give a lengthy teaching here about the doctrine of hell. From verse 33 to verse 48, he says hell is a place of fire, hell is a place of torment. And he has extended teaching on it. I don't think many people teach much on hell. But Jesus did. In the book of Matthew, there's unique teaching on hell. In the book of Luke, there is teaching that's only in the book of Luke on hell. And in the book of Mark, there's teaching that's only in the book of Mark on hell. Chapter 10. Moving over to chapter 10. He says this uh, in verse 27 that I didn't touch on last in last week's message on Matthew for with God, all things are possible. The prosperity gospel it twists this and contorts it. Let me just ask you, what does this mean in verse 27? Um, with God, all things are possible. The context is the rich young ruler. Do you remember this rich young ruler? He, he's a young man. He comes to Jesus back in verse, um, verse 17. He says, what can I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, obey the commandments. He says, oh, but I already do that. And then Jesus says, sell what you have. He goes away sorrowing. And Jesus loved him. It says that Jesus loved that young man in verse 21. Uh, By the way, Mark is the only gospel that says that Jesus loved him. And Jesus is, uh, Mark's gospel is the only one who says, uh, come take up the cross and follow me in verse 21. So he goes away. And then in verse 24, Jesus says, it is very hard for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 27, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. Prosperity preachers quote this verse, but they don't read the context. What is possible with God? A rich guy can be converted. That's it. God can save Donald Trump. That, that's, what it, that's, that's the message. You might think it's impossible. He's how old? 70 years old or something. He's rich. He's profane. He's worldly. God can save him. That's not beyond his power. Uh, I can just tell you briefly the story of a rich man who was converted. Very old. In his, I believe he was in his 80s. Mortimer Adler. He was an unbelieving secular philosopher, famous philosopher in America. Wrote a number of books. I have some of his books. Mortimer Adler wrote the book "How to Read a Book," and then he wrote the book "How to Speak," "How to Listen." He wrote lots of books. He wrote his autobiography in his seventies, and then he wrote a second autobiography after he became a Christian. I believe in his eighties. The book, the second autobiography, is "Another Look in the Rearview Mirror." (laughs) Isn't that nice as an 80-year-old man to write? Let me look back. Yeah, okay. I got some things to change. I need to write a second autobiography because now I've come to Jesus. God can save people like that, even at 80. Oh, what a wonderful passage. Skip over chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins the Passion Week. And so from chapter 11 to chapter 16, it's the last seven days of our Lord. And, And here, oh, so much glory, but we'll run, run through it. Chapter 11, the triumphal entry. Chapter 12 is the parables that we covered it briefly in Matthew. Chapter 13 is the Olivet Discourse, the teaching about the future. It's the only discourse that Mark includes at length. He cuts out the Sermon on the Mount. You know, some people like to say that eschatology is not that important. So it's not, it's not, let's not spend that much time. It's popular. I am a premillennial dispensationalist very common in America, very uncommon here. Okay. Most conservative preachers are amillennialists and I am not. I'm, I'd be the other side. And, and it's very common for them to say, hey, hey, don't talk so much about the future. You know, the only one of the sermons that Jesus recorded or that Mark recorded is the sermon that has to do with the future. Maybe the future is more important than we think. Maybe we should teach about the future. That's Mark chapter 13. And then Mark 14 is the Passover. They all drank of it. Mark 14. Mark 15 is the crucifixion. Oh, so many things in here we're just running on. I don't have time to talk about the division of the wills. And chapter 16, let me just go right to the end. Chapter 16 is different from all the other uh, resurrection accounts. Because in verse 9. There's a section from verse 9 down to verse 20 that many manuscripts didn't have. It's different from all the accounts in this. In verse 17, I'm sorry, let's start in verse 15. He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Verse 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be damned. The church of Christ wants to tell us that we must be baptized or else we will not go to heaven. But Jesus says, if, you're believe, if you believe and be baptized, you'll be saved. But how do you go to hell? You just do one thing. What's the one thing you do to go to hell? Don't believe. But Jesus does connect belief and baptism because everyone who's truly believing in Jesus will submit to baptism. If you say you're a believer, but you refuse to be baptized, I doubt if you're a believer. Why? Because he says it right there. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone. Verse 17. And these signs will follow the believers. I love this part. Some people think I don't like this because I don't believe in miracles today. I love this part. These signs will follow the believers. In my name, they will cast out devils. Number one. You can mark the numbers on the side of your Bible. Number two, they will speak with new tongues. Number three, they will take up serpents. Number four, if they drink poison, it will not hurt them. Number five, they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. One, two, three, four, five. How many of those do people claim that they are doing today? Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I don't know of anyone who claims they're picking up snakes. None. I've never heard of any I've never heard of any charismatic church in Africa that says we pick up snakes. Have you heard of them? I'm sorry, you've seen a church that picks up snakes. Here in Africa. Okay. Okay, I've 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 never I've never seen that. The the snakes and the poison. I, I've heard of churches who proclaim to do three of the things. Uh, they proclaim to cast out demons. They proclaim to speak in tongues. And they proclaim that they um, steal people. But I've never seen anyone, now, Dakota's uh, my evidence against this, but I've never seen anyone who proclaims to pick up snakes or to drink poison. Paul did, though, in Acts chapter 28. He got bit, shook it off. Everyone thinks he's going to die. He doesn't go to the hospital. If people drink something bad today, they rush to the hospital. Even charismatic creatures. By the way, charismatic creatures, some of them wear glasses. If they say they can heal, what are the glasses for? In these five marks, no one does those two. They've all got to admit some of them have passed away. But this makes perfect sense. Because after Mark... Uh, after the book of Mark comes the book of Acts. And all these things are seen in the book of Mark. The book of Acts. Remember, Mark's writing here. The book of Acts is done now. The book of Acts ended about here. Mark's writing. He's looking back over it all and he's saying, yeah, yeah, I know those five things. We saw them. They all happened. Every one of those things happened. And they're done now. They were God's tool to begin the church, and they're done. And if someone says, oh, they're not done, then I just say, pick up a snake, please. Just Go pick up a snake. Go drink some petrol. You drink the petrol. You go drink a glass filled with cement. But they won't, and they can't, and they don't. And if their child drinks rat poison, they're going to run to the hospital. And they should. But if one of them has passed away, what about the others? They were for a time, and they were a good thing for a time, but they're not used anymore. We close with 19 and 20, the book of Acts. So then after the Lord had spoken, he was received into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere. The Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs, wonders, and miracles. Amen. This is the beginning of the gospel. Look at Christ. Love Christ. Adore Him. Be amazed at His teachings. Humble yourself. Repent and believe. And you will be saved. Father, fill us with Your Spirit and help us to accept and to love the teachings of the Bible today. Thank You for this little book. Thank You that You gave us three of these books, these synoptics. Help us to love the teaching of the Bible And please save your people. In Jesus' name, amen.